Well, we're in this series still called Dangerous Generosity, and uh, we will be for a little while longer here. And this morning, I've entitled this message, A Dangerous Resolution, because it is time for resolutions, right? The resolutions we'll make, but make and break, and uh, this is a dangerous resolution. Now, if you were to research the theme, Dangerous Activities, You'd be shocked by how many lists you'll find if you go and look for dangerous activities. There are lists that will include the world's most dangerous intersections, the world's most dangerous fireworks, all sorts of lists, the world's most dangerous hikes, one of which uh, some of our folks have gone on several times, the Mist Trail up Yosemite's half dome that ranks as one of the world's most dangerous hikes. There are lists about the world's most dangerous roads, the world's most dangerous bridges, America's most dangerous cities. There are lists about America's most dangerous cities. They, uh, you know, um, Oakland is up there. San Francisco, I think, doesn't make the list. Oakland, and we have a second, one of the world's most dangerous cities uh, in our area. Oakland, I think, is number three. You know what number one is? Detroit. But you get all these lists of the world's most dangerous cities. There are dangerous places. There's a list, dangerous places you should definitely visit. Because they're saying things like, like Yemen. You should definitely visit Yemen. It has so much to offer. It's so exciting. Kenya was in that. So exciting, there's so much there, but there's huge risk. Like Yemen, you're going to encounter Al-Qaeda in Yemen, and the State Department recommends you not go to Yemen anytime ever. But boy, it's worth the risk because there's this and there's that. You know, uh, some of the cities that have the highest murder rate in South America. Uh, go there, the highest murder rate, four times the murder rate of the United States, this Brazil has. You know, some of the, but boy, the surfing is great, so you might want to risk it. Definite places to visit that are very dangerous. There are the world's most dangerous holidays, including an article on five reasons Christmas is the most dangerous time of year. But I have this question, isn't whether or not something's dangerous a matter of perspective? I mean, doesn't it depend on the angle from which you're looking at it? Because isn't it true that one person's danger can be another person's safety net? Well, dangerous for you, but from my perspective in life, that's what's dangerous. Because that's a threat to this that I value. You say this is dangerous because it's a threat to what you value. One person's danger can be another person's safety net. Also on the list of world's most dangerous, country's most dangerous there's something called the world's most dangerous beauty salon. Well, I've walked past beauty salons, and if somebody's having some chemical put in their hair, I know it's a threat to my life. I know I shouldn't be inhaling those smells. That's pretty dangerous. But the world's most dangerous beauty salon is actually a political website discussing crazy local Texas politics, and the only thing that it's a danger to is wacky thinking just depends on your perspective. 
There's an article, if you do that search, that you might come across called America's Most Dangerous Librarians. <laughs> Funny at first, except these librarians were a danger only to the abuse of government power. They were librarians that refused to turn over some documents in a library because they sensed that there was an abuse of power in asking for them, and it turns out they were right. All depends on your perspective. There's an article on the most dangerous 49ers special teams players. And they are dangerous, but not to the 49ers. It depends on your perspective. One person's danger is another person's safety net. They're only a real danger to opponents of the 49ers. I have a question for us today along this theme of dangerous resolution. It's a serious question. It's one for our church. It's one for us as individual followers of Christ. What's at risk because you are here? What's at risk because Marin Covenant Church is here? To what are we a danger? I purposely did not say to whom are we a danger, but to what are we a danger? Because our battle is not, Scripture tells us, against flesh and blood. People that disagree with us, even vociferously, are not our enemies. They are our colleagues in this crazy journey. No matter how frustrating we can be with one another. But to what are we a danger? Because if we're a danger to nothing, then maybe we're a danger to the gospel itself. In responding to that question, as leaders of our church, we made a dangerous resolution several years back. It was our vision and value statement. And we crafted it in such a way that we thought, if it's lived out, then it is a threat to something but it's a threat to something that wounds people, to something that stands in opposition to the Christ we follow. And I want to spend some time with that today in re-engaging, re-resolving this dangerous statement that we made. Our vision is, and you hopefully have heard it before, to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired, intelligent, and involved. To be a church for your heart, your head, and your hands. That's our vision statement. And that statement guides us. It explains why we do what we do, why we say no to great opportunities that are wonderful opportunities, legitimate ministry opportunities, but they don't necessarily fit into where we feel the Holy Spirit's leading us. But it's our values that I want to focus on today in this discussion of a dangerous resolution. For our values help us to understand the how and why of so much we do, especially the why of so much we do. They present for Marine Covenant a danger we wish to pose to all that opposes the heart of Christ. Revisiting those is a great way to end 2013 and launch into 2014. So that's all we're going to do today. We're going to revisit those values and consider them, again, a dangerous resolution. These must lead us. Ready? I'm going to sail through these things 
At least that's my intent. Just as way, by way of reminder. One of our values is adventure. And I take for my text on adventure, Philippians 3.10, where the text says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's a wonderful adventure statement. Identify with his death. Knock things down that need to be knocked down. You have this picture, at least I do when I read that text, of this, this spiritual jungle and you know the machete when you're cutting back the weeds to find your way through the thing, except the spiritual version of that. To take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. And here's what we mean by adventure. We mean at Marin Covenant Church, we don't avoid risk, we applaud it. We're always challenging ourselves to take risks that are reasonable risks, but in a sense, reasonable and risk don't go together, do they? Safe and risk certainly don't. And you have seen us take some risks as leaders and then you have helped us get up off of our faces because we've fallen flat on our faces with some of the worship expressions that we've experimented with. They've been risked. We're not sure how they would work out, whether you know, they were, they were going to actually help people worship. And most of the time they do, but sometimes they haven't. And you've been so gracious to live into that value. We don't avoid risk. We applaud it. We don't fear failure. We learn from it. These are the kinds of things we're committed to. We don't reject journey, we seek journey, we live journey, we recognize that Christianity is a journey, that even, even God illustrates this. I mean, he chose a moon worshiper, to be cons- Abram, to be considered a person of faith, and he based everything that we experience now on that man. And he wasn't even a follower of the true God back then, he was open to him, he was he was, he was hearing from him, but he still had his family idols in his backpack as he took off. And there was this journey toward orthodoxy that God led Abraham on. Those three wise people, those three kings, whatever you want to call them, that came to worship Jesus were not orthodox Christians. They were spiritually hungry, but they believed and worshipped in all sorts of wacky things. Yet they still found their way to Christ. You have God exemplifying the value of a journey. Look, I will respond to anybody that's open to the truth, and I will reward those who seek truth, even if you're starting from the wrong place. I love a person who will launch out onto a trail, and if he loves that, and he's always going to guide us to the truth, but when you're really hungry and you're a spiritual seeker, and even if you believe things that aren't, you're not going to find in Scripture... God's not saying, get yourself straightened out before you can come in my doors. He's saying, I love that hunger in you. Come on, let's go feed it the right kind of food, step by step. And if he loves people like that, my goodness, how much must he love a church that values that? Not a church that just believes anything, but a church that says, we want to paint the circle as wide as possible. And then try to move toward the Christ that's at the center of that circle. We're cool enough to do that. We're mature enough to do that. We're secure enough to do that. We don't, we don't reject journey. We seek it. Adventure. Authenticity is a second core value. 
For example, Romans 3. And here, here's, here's, I think, the foundation for authenticity. Where there's no difference between the you you present and the you you are. There's, there's a sameness in authenticity. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what all means in the Greek? All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. Every single person you will ever meet in your life has skinned his or her knees. Every single person is broken and mended by the initiative of Jesus Christ. Everyone, everyone in this room is dependent. Everyone in this room has shattered something, whether publicly or secretly. And some still are. So there's no reason to hide anything. Authenticity is a value. And by that we mean this. This is a hard one to practice. Because we're not great at grace. But we mean this. No pretending needed. We want to develop a culture where we don't um, throw logs on the fire of the need to pretend anything when we come in here. When we're in this part of a community. So only in a church where people are real are others free to be real as well. I mean, only in a church where people find some ability to stand up and say, you know what, I have not always seen things as I see them now. Here's what God has delivered me out of or is delivering me out of. You saw it a few weeks ago in our thanks service where people stood up and said, man, here's where I was, here's where I am, here's what I'm struggling with. I'm glad I found a community where I could be honest about that. Authenticity, no pretending needed. No pretending allowed. So no one was ever set free because others around them pretended to be perfect. We, we have this sickness in the evangelical church that I'd love to see cured. It is the sickness that hides our flaws. Now sometimes... We don't need to share our flaws because it's not going to be in the best interest of, it's TMI, you know, too much information. Everything that's said must be true, but not everything that's true must be said. It's, it, 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 but be sensitive with what we share and make sure that people are, are able to handle uh, what we share. And we have to make sure of things like, well, what I share is, I thought it was my information, but it actually involves my whole family. It's not just mine to share, it involves them, and they weren't you know, on the vote whether or not to share. I mean, there are, there are nuances to this thing. But no one was ever set free because others pretended they were perfect. In fact, when you walk into a community, any community, and you perceive you're the only one with X problem or this problem or this way of seeing things because everybody else is silent, it doesn't set you free. It puts you in deeper bondage. See, I knew it. I knew I was the only one that was this messed up. Authenticity. No pretending needed, no pretending allowed. But there's a third point to that. I've got to go faster than this. No pretending unforgiven either. Authentic communities forgive those who realize they have been pretending. You were a pretender. You were a shill. I remember doing that. 
I was praying this morning the Lord's Prayer, and uh, I got to the part where it says, forgive my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. And I usually, almost always, pray, God, that last part, would you please do work in me that makes my natural response forgiveness. Make me a forgiver. So it's my natural response. And then I thought this morning, I'm switching that. I'm saying, because it's, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And I switched it and I said, cause me to forgive those who sin against me with the same intensity of the forgiveness I've received from you. No pretending unforgiven. We value adventure, authenticity, community. Philippians 2, therefore, if you have any encouragement from bringing you not being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. My friend Gary Walter Uh, when I worked for him, would always remind us, always act in the best interest of the other party. That's what Jesus did. You go ahead and whip me again, but, but I have Jerry in mind, and it stings, oh, it stings, and I'm bleeding, but he needs me to take that whip. Not looking to your own interest, but to but each of you to the interest of others. That that's a community that does that. And by community, we mean three things. We are committed to connecting with each other in sincere and deep relationship. We mean, uh, we mean we are committed to being good friends with our neighbors in our communities. So we're a community here, but we live in communities. And this group of Christians at Marine Covenant Church, this is true of other churches around too, we're committed to being good citizens, good neighbors, parts of that community. And we're committed to the practice of, hear this now, loyal friendship with other local Christian churches. You may have come to Marin Covenant from another local church, and I hope you weren't offended by it. Um, but some, for some of us, there was a, a gentle invitation to, not everybody, but a gentle invitation to find what you needed here, but is there any chance we could help you succeed at the church you came from. Now, for many, no, that's, that's not going to be possible. But we always are praying for and looking for opportunities to serve people, not so you can't come here because you're a member over at Hillside or whatever, but um, we love Hillside Church. Hillside Church needs to be, they are healthy, and they need to continue to be healthy for us to have the whole mission together happen that we want to see happen. We're, we're just committed here, as awkward as it is sometimes, to being generous, uh, to being uh, loyal friends to the other local Christian churches. That starts with pastor being true, pastors being true friends, leaders building, building true friendships, and us recognizing that we're all on the same team and it doesn't really do the gospel any good to forget that. So adventure, authenticity, community, generosity. Generosity, 1 Timothy 6, command those so there's financial generosity but there's not just financial generosity. Generosity has all, all sorts of forms. But the text says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds as well as rich financially. See, there's all sorts of wealth. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may, t- they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And in Proverbs eleven twenty five, it's a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Generosity, and we break that down this way. We are committed to, in these core values, this dangerous resolution, to generosity to our church. So we are financially generous to Marin Covenant Church and our denomination, that's our denominational family. And we, we don't talk about it very often, I don't think, uh, but we do encourage people who are part of our church to take a tenth of your income and invest it in the ministry of the church. And it gets dispersed in all sorts of ways. That's how we do things in the world, the things that we want to do. So generous, generous to our church, but we are generous in our church too. We are emotionally generous as we encounter others in our body. There is a tenderness, a generosity of spirit that we long for people to experience when they're around us. That, by the way, is also a form of wealth. And we are generous as a church. We are generous with our efforts to bless the churches and the community around us. And so we work with them for things like gift of love and investing in Hamilton School. And you might think, man, this church does nothing but receive offerings for different outreaches like Annabella's Gifts and Hamilton School and gift of love and going, shoes to go for a family to go down to Mexico with. And you know, Of course, and get used to it, man. We're going to be looking for ways to give and give and give and give and give. And give and give. Because God, through Jesus, gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and still gives and gives and gives and gives. That's one of the things that's rock-solid different about Christians. By the way, when Christians are generous in all forms of generosity, it's a very dangerous thing for those who oppose Christ. Very dangerous. We're committed to humility. It's another core value. Humility. Romans 12, 3. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, sound mind, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And that's a wonderful challenge for those who live in communities like Marin. A lot of friend asked me last June, Art, another pastor friend, what's it like to minister to a bunch of rich people? And actually, he was more well-meaning than that sounds. He was just asking a simple question of context of ministry. But the idea that we are rich and powerful people exclusively, no, by world standards, of course, we are. And by American standards, many of us are. But when you're ministering in that context or one that's perceived to be that context, it's always a good reminder to be able to say, you know, humility might be something we want to hold on to and work at and not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but think with sober judgment, sober mind. 
Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes vision. And in Philippians 2, one of my favorite texts, it challenges us in our relationships with one another to have the same mindset as Christ, who being the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be held onto or grasped for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Why? Because he humbled himself, God exalted him. And then switch to Micah 6, 8. How are we supposed to be investing our lives and energies, God? And Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and walk what? What? Walk humbly with your God. Humility. And that means for us, theological humility, where reasonable Christians can disagree theologically. We hold our theological positions with respect for others. It doesn't mean we don't believe anything. It doesn't mean we jettison the idea of doctrinal certainty or theological certainty. We, we can be certain about what we believe, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an edge of humility in it where reasonable Christians can disagree on something we're going to approach those things with some humility, theological humility, relational humility. Remembering what it feels like to be wounded, we are kind to others, seeing them as more important than ourselves. So there's a theological humility, a relational humility. Did it feel good to be wounded? Did it feel good to be invisible to folks? Did it feel good to be forgotten? No. So with humility, we want to build those relationships. And then humility and the idea of personal humility. We remember that our value is found in Christ, not in the things we accomplish for his sake or even the things we own because of his blessing. Our value is in Christ. That's a hard one to get our heads around. But that's part of humility. We're almost done. Uh, We're moving toward the next value now that's part of this dangerous covenant, this dangerous resolution. So adventure, authenticity, community, generosity, humility, transformation. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of your world, of your culture but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's good and pleasing and perfect will. Transformation. And here's what our church values in terms of transformation, and we we try to live into this and follow opportunities for this. We believe in the need for personal transformation. So Christianity is in large part about personal transformation. It's about a broken relationship with God being mended through the work of Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers. It's about people saying, oh God, transform me, 
Jesus, I want to follow you. Holy Spirit, come and live in me and transform me. Change in me what needs to be changed. Build in me what needs to be built. Keep in me and cause to take root what needs to be kept. But transform me. I believe in transformation, the miracle of that. And I'm yielding to you. I'm, the old language is I'm receiving you as my personal Savior. That's still good language. But that's what we're talking about here, that kind of personal transformation. But we also believe in the need for community transformation because Christianity, as I've said a hundred times, is about source of life, but it's also about way of life, and those should never be separated from each other. And we believe in the need for societal transformation. Love mercy, do justice, walk humbly. That means there are things that just about everybody can see that are wrong. They're not things that cause God to applaud. They're things that cause God to weep. And they ought to be made right. And the church needs to be active in addressing those things. Transformation. Truth is the next one, and we just have this one and one more. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, or inspired, that's what that means, and useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. By truth, we mean to break it down this way. We are Bible-focused because we are convinced that the Bible is absolute truth. Now, that puts us out of step with a lot of current thinking, but that's where we are. We stand there, that's where we stand. We believe that the Bible is absolute truth. In other words, it said, look, there's a right and a wrong, and here's the right, and here's what's wrong, and you want to go after what's right. It teaches us the heart of God. We we are Bible-led because we are convinced that it leads us to the one who is the truth. So the whole story is about Jesus. Old Testament leading up to him, New Testament announcing him, and then exposing and explaining him and challenging us to follow him. So we're Bible-focused because we're convinced that it's truth. We're Bible-led because we're convinced that it leads us to the one who is the truth. And we're Bible-taught because we are convinced that it presents to us the one who teaches truth. That doesn't mean that our perspective on the Bible is what's been called a wooden literalism that doesn't take any intelligent analysis. It definitely does take intelligence. Remember, we're a church for your heart, your what? Your head and your hands. And so we do the hard intellectual work of studying and discovering historical context and, and the work of, of communi- you know, communication theory of what did Jesus mean by what Jesus said in his context and what is that, how would that apply today? There's work to be done in studying scripture, so we don't mean to imply anything other than that. But we hold to the value that, of truth and that scripture is where that truth is ultimately found. And then finally, one last one. The core value of worship. Maybe nothing puts darkness at risk more than people of the light worshiping the God who lit the candle in the first place. Worship is a statement of position. Psalm 30. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. I can hardly ever worship thoughtfully without 
looking back on some of the history and the places that God has brought me through. And often it's, you, you were the God who found me in de- desperate depression. And all the lights were off. I couldn't figure out why I didn't want to live anymore in 1987 or 88, back whenever that was. It was like I got this injection of despair into my soul. That this, this awful syringe was emptied in my soul, and I couldn't fight it off. It was like trying to stay awake when you got anesthesia. You can count backward from 100, but you're only going to get to 95. I dare you to try to stay awake. That's what this depression was like. And I worship sometimes saying, you are the God who brought me out of that. You were, the, you were the God who delivered me from that. And now you use me. I can help other folks who have been there or are going there. And you're the one who keeps me out of that. I mean, that's one experience that I've had. You, man, you're more than a fable, God. You're more than a story. You're more than a concept, more than a theory. You do stuff for people. And you have turned my morning into dancing. And what do we do when stuff like that happens? We applaud. We scream. We cheer. Now, we're more subtle than that. We're sort of reserved. We, we have only one or two applauders and cheerers. That's okay. doesn't mean we're not worshiping. Worship is one of those, those values. And we pray for our church to be moving into worship. We're committed to depth of experience and an unrelenting thirst for the presence of God. That's one of the things we pray for as leaders mostly here. God, create a thirst, a hunger for the presence of God among us. And we value the vulnerability we reveal when we offer ourselves to him. We value that. It's not an easy thing to do, but we value it. And we seek the joy that results from experiencing worship together in community. I uh, was reading an op-ed piece from August of the New York Times, not all of which I agreed with. In fact, much of the sentiment I found troubling. But for the majority of it, it was pretty inspiring. It was talking about young leadership and the need for it to rise up and using as an example Martin Luther King and the I Have a Dream speech. And in that op-ed piece, I was reminded that Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which we recently celebrated the, what, the 50th anniversary of it, was it? But that led the FBI, that speech was catalytic. It led the FBI to refer to Dr. King as, quote, I quote this now. This is insensitive language today, but I quote it now uh, from back then. Refer to him as the most dangerous Negro in America even labeling him as a serious threat to America's national security. Just from the I Have a Dream speech. A whole bunch of people someplace with a lot of power said, "Uh uh-oh. And he certainly was dangerous. Several quotes from that article. This is not a block of quotes, so there's gaps between this and the article, but just listen to some of what this op-ed, this author says. Of course, King was, wasn't dangerous to the country, but to the status quo. King demanded that America answer for her sins, that she be rustled from her waywardness, that she be truth to herself and to the promise of her founding. 
Another quote, King was dangerous because he wouldn't quietly accept or allow a weary people to any longer quietly accept what had been. He insisted that we all imagine, dream of what could and must be. Another quote, King's staggering achievement is testament to what can be achieved by a man or woman, possessed of clear conviction and rightly positioned on the side of justice and freedom. It is a testament to the power of people united physically, gathering together so that they must be counted and considered where they can no longer be ignored or written off. Another quote, there was a vacuum in the American body politic waiting to be filled by a young person of vision and courage, one not suckled to sleep by reality television and social media monotony. And the final quote I bring you from that article. The only question, the author said, is who will that person be? Who will be this generation's most dangerous American? The country is waiting. And I thought of a question our church's leaders have for us. They have a dream too. The question is, who will this generation's most dangerous churches be? Because we dream of being listed among them. Now that's a lofty dream, maybe even an arrogant dream. But I want to make that list. The most dangerous churches in America. But remember, one person's danger is another person's safety net. It all depends on perspective. We don't want to be a church that's a danger to the future of Christianity and the future of the world or the future of the gospel. And I I fear there are some churches who are accidentally becoming that. We, we dream of being known as a danger to the status quo, an enemy of the theological complacency that seeks to tame the message of Jesus and the activities of his followers, a danger to that kind of thinking that says, don't go too far, don't take too many risks, don't talk with those folks, don't build friendships with those folks, don't be a part of this coalition or that coalition. You might be a compromiser. We want to be on that list that says, These folks are not a danger to the gospel or a missional conviction. They are a danger to everything that stands against it. And that means you have to be risk takers and you have to get in theological conversations that you were trained all your life you weren't supposed to have. This is a different world that we live in than the one we grew up with. Amen? Amen. It's got all sorts of people who are looking for something and why should they be left out of the conversation when the church has that conversation? Oh, you've heard me say that before. I dream of us being a security threat to anything and everything that keeps people from experiencing the abundant life Jesus came to bring and the dreams God has for all he created. And it's for that reason that we re-resolve today to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired, intelligent, and involved and to do it by employing the values that we today restated. Adventure, authenticity, community, generosity, humility, transformation, truth, and worship. A very, very, very dangerous resolution. So we pray.
And would you stand and be dismissed with this blessing? And now God, ignite our hearts as you have ignited the light that shines in the darkness. And we need more wisdom than we've got because we value truth on the one hand and you're asking us to walk in places where truth gets fuzzy and foggy and crazy and tough to hold on to. Where to live the truth, it looks like we're not living love. And to live love looks like we're not living the truth. And this, the, the, the more we walk, the tougher it gets. But we believe you are able to hold us right there in the palm of your hand. And we can be faithful to both truth and love, to both purity and mission. We call upon you for that, especially because we have no capacity for it ourselves. Make us dangerous, O oh God. And in so doing, make us faithful. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen.